Good morning, church. Um, our, scripture, our scripture reading is taken from First Peter chapter 3, verses 12 um, to 16. Uh, I'm so excited to be back uh, with you all. I've missed uh, our fellowship. And uh, church, Daniel and I are grateful um, for uh, the kind words and your prayers. Thank you so much. Again, um, our scripture reading is from First Peter chapter 3, verses 12 through to verse 16. That's verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a good reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse ye so, that ye suffer for well-doing. Sorry, I'll start verse 16 again. Uh, mm. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I invite you to follow along. We'll be starting in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll just do a quick overview of the 1 Peter epistle, and a reminder that this epistle was written to Gentile believers who were going through persecution. And Peter gives some very important thoughts that I'd like for us to focus on today. I want to draw your attention first to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. These were the verse, this was the verse that we had as a theme last week. I hope that it will settle into your mind this morning. This is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I'll read that again, and I want you to pay attention to the words of Scripture. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but His face is against them that do evil. Please don't think for one moment this morning that His face being against them that do evil is the opposite of His ears being open. That's not the opposite. You might think His ears open to my prayer or his ears closed to my prayer. That's not what he said. He said, his ears are open to their prayer, or his face is against them. Do you understand the gravity of the words, his face are against them? His face being against you is God is your enemy. It's one thing for someone to close their ears to your words. It's another thing entirely for someone to hate you. And that's what happens to the unrighteous. I'll start our sermon this morning 
with comment on what happened this week. What happened this week was sin. Through and through. I will speak as kindly as I possibly can, and I want you to know, I don't say this to boast, what I speak comes from my heart. I faced the barrel of a gun this week while I tried to protect five innocent lives. And so what I say, I don't say from the, behind the safety of offense and security. This comes from my heart this morning. Sin is sin, and you do not justify sin because someone else sinned. Sin is sin. There were women who were raped and people who were traumatized this week. And there are people lying in the morgue today because others who did not do their duty, I didn't say do their job, I said do their duty, stepped away from their job. That's sin. And there are those who were put in places, elected into places, who took taxes and used them for their own personal gain. That's sin. And there are those who are in the public service this morning who refused to do their jobs without having their personal wheels greased. That's sin. There are shopkeepers across our city and across our nation who will sit in corners up above people and treat their customers like they're a subclass human. That's sin. And there were people by the thousands this week who destroyed personal property of others and took things that did not belong to them and did unspeakable atrocities and said, Happy New Year. That's sin. From the top to the bottom. All of it's sin. And you and I, as Christians, have been called to live different. Be ye holy. Hear the words of Christ. Be ye holy as I am holy. Brothers and sisters, this is the core of Christianity. I'm going to be different. I'm not going to follow in the steps of someone else because they sinned, I'll sin. No! I'm going to be different. You've been called to be holy. Come with me back to 1 Peter 1 and verse 15. You'll see the words there. I think I saw, and perhaps you saw this week also, we saw evidence that our nation is not a Christian nation. Far from it. And I'm broken over it. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ear is inclined to the people who do right, but His face is set against those who are not doing right. He is at enmity against evildoers. You and I as Christians, you see it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. As He which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, three times it was written, be ye holy, for I am holy. He's called us, brothers and sisters, and if somehow you got caught up in that mess this week, and somehow you found yourself walking through a smashed door that someone else broke, you participated in sin and you need to get your heart right with God. Don't hear me say everybody did it. I know that everybody didn't do it. But if it's some level from the top to the bottom, you find that you need to repent of your sin, I implore you, as your pastor, repent, forsake. Let's put it behind us. Not for the sake of our nation. Yea, our nation needs it. But for our own sake, with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Be holy. 
for He is holy. Come back with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 12, and I'm going to take Peter's thought from here and continue to develop it in the next few verses. Here's 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is He that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ." So there's two thoughts going on here, two thoughts throughout the book of 1 Peter. These two thoughts are being developed, and we're not walking through the book of 1 Peter. We're just seeing the spiritual disciplines, and I'll tell you the spiritual disciplines are your weapons against a spiritual battle in order to be holy and fight off sin. But the first thought that keeps being developed is this one, it's be holy, be holy, And that is brought out again in verse 12 because God's eyes are over you. He's watching. He's listening if you're holy. And He's against you if you're not. And so there's this overarching theme, this thought that's being developed. But then there's a second thought that goes along with it that really starts to pick up in verse 14. And that thought is this. Holy people sometimes endure suffering. Holy people sometimes endure suffering. There's a common misconception within our society. I would say I hear it a lot in our society. This isn't just here, but it is globally. This common misconception that, well, if I'm on God's side, then nobody can do any wrong or any harm against me. That's a misunderstanding of the Scriptures. In fact, if you just think practically... And I hope that you don't do this. I hope that you don't take, well, there's Bible ideas and thoughts from Christianity and then there's real life. I hope you don't think that way. Those gospel transformation issues should come into your life and your life should be lived differently because of what you believe. Your actions are formed by your beliefs. Don't separate those. That's that's why we can say we're a Christian nation and yet we destroy our own city. We have people who say, we believe this, but they act this. They don't really believe. That's the problem. And so when we have this idea that, well, if I do good, then bad things won't happen against me, or we say, and I hear it quite often, Pastor, you don't have anything to worry about because this is a church and you guys are okay and we're doing God's work and nobody will do anything against us. Oh, friend, think practically with me. The Apostle Peter, who wrote this epistle, was crucified, and right before they put him on the cross, he asked them, he said, please, I don't deserve to be crucified like my Lord Jesus. Would you please crucify me upside down? And they did it. Practically speaking, you cannot follow through this logic and say, well, nothing bad will happen to you if you're a good Christian. Peter himself wrote the book. Upside down, he's crucified. Paul wrote a larger portion of the New Testament. Paul, head cut off. 
Let's come to modern day. In India, this last year, between the months of May and September, in northeast India, in a four-month period, legal documentation shows that 642 churches were destroyed. That's 2023. 600 plus churches destroyed in northeast India. Are you going to tell those believers these type of thoughts? How about Niger, the nation of, sorry, Nigeria, the nation of Nigeria, currently experiencing massive persecution against Christians, and in that same four-month period, May to September, that same period, 450 Christians were killed. This is well documented. Tens of thousands of Christians misplaced, uh, displaced from their homes and their crops destroyed. And you want to say, well, if you're doing right, then bad things don't happen to you. Practically speaking, we see that that's false. And even biblically speaking, that's false. Peter's writing to these believers that are in modern-day Turkey at that time, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Galatia. Those are listed in chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter's writing to them, and he's saying, you guys are going through massive persecution. Nero burned down Rome, and he blamed the Christians, and now you guys are the ones catching this. Isn't it amazing? And I think we've seen it this week. Isn't it amazing how quickly things can change? Nine o'clock on Wednesday morning, not a one of us was given it a second thought. Nine p.m. on Wednesday, we were thinking, what in the world happened to our city? And oh, how quickly those who were believers and thought, I'm following Jesus, everything's going to be fine. Oh, how quickly Nero burned a city and blamed it on the Christians and people that lived in Turkey, hundreds of miles away, receiving the brunt end of that persecution. And Peter writes to them and says, it's going to be okay. Now, I want you to focus with me what do we do with this? What do we do with this suffering? Look at verse 13. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And I can hear you arguing with me right now. I can hear you arguing. I hope you're arguing. I hope you don't just come to church and sit like a bump on a log and just go, okay, feed me, feed me, feed me. I hope that mentally you're arguing with me. Because if you're arguing with me, that means that there's a false doctrine that comes along. You'll argue with that one too. And I'm doing my best to arm you with some really good ammunition. So when the false doctrine comes along, you'll recognize it. So when I say one thing, and then we read something from the scriptures that looks different from what I just said, I hope that you're mentally going, Pastor, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And if I just read verse 13, it seems like everything I just said is wrong. I'll read it again. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? It almost seems like, from verse 13, it almost seems like if you're doing right, who can hurt you? I'll go ahead and give you a glimpse of verse 14 to let you know that that's not what he just said. And then I'll explain what he did say in verse 13. Verse 14 he said, But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. So you cannot say he just said if you're doing right, you won't suffer, because he just said, but if you do suffer... So what was it that he was saying in verse 13? It's quite simple, and you and I learned this lesson this week. If you do right, you don't have to worry about the government coming and doing their job against you. If you weren't a looter, you wouldn't have got shot. Pretty simple. That's pretty simple. If you do right, these are the words that he's using, if you do right, you don't have to be afraid that those who are in positions of power will come after you. But if you're doing right and you suffer, 
He's going to give us a whole different way of thinking now. Here's verse 14. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So this is a totally different argument. Live right and you'll be okay, but if you live right and you suffer, you can be happy because you know you didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I suffered. I went through persecution. I was doing right. I still suffered. I can be happy because I did right and I still suffered. It's okay. And by the way, theology of suffering, and I don't have time to develop this this morning, another place it says, you are suffering with Christ. What a great person to associate with in your suffering. In verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. So here you're doing right. You receive persecution. You go through suffering. You can be happy because you know I didn't do anything wrong and this came upon me. It's okay. And I have a good, clean conscience. And I can sanctify the Lord in my heart. I can set God apart and go, I am doing right with God. I know that I've done right. And this just happened to me. I don't have any reason to be afraid. Now continue the verse 16. That, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So as I take the original meaning of these verses for the original readers, as Paul, uh, sorry, as Peter wrote these verses for those believers that were suffering, whose hand were they suffering at? They were suffering at the hand of the government. The government soldiers implementing persecution on those believers. Why? Because they were believers. And Peter says... If you're doing right, keep doing right. And eventually that soldier, when he comes in to arrest you, he's going to be embarrassed because he knows he shouldn't be arresting you. So let your good conversation, your good lifestyle, be a condemnation to his conscience. And as you go, Peter, to the cross, Paul, to the guillotine, as you go, go with your hands tied, knowing that God's got a better plan for you. And I can say, what's the worst that will happen? I'm going to be with Jesus. Paul's words. I'm in a straight betwixt two. I don't know which way to go. Whether to stay with you and, and be a blessing to you and help you, or to go be with Jesus, and the next phrase is very important, I can go be with Jesus, which is far better. So what's the worst that can happen to you in suffering as a Christian, doing right? What's the worst that can happen to you? I go be with Jesus, which is far better. And so he's called us to be holy. And then he takes this thought of sometimes believers suffer. He takes that thought and he combines them in chapter 4 and verse 1. So come with me over to chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2, he's going to take these two thoughts. Be holy. Sometimes it's painful for you to be holy. He's going to put them together. Here's chapter 4 and verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. I'm going to hone in on a couple of words in verse 1. Arm yourselves likewise with this mind. In other words, think this way and use it as a weapon. When we say that a soldier arms himself, he arms himself with an M16. Or a soldier in those days arm himself with a sword. When you go into battle, you need an offensive weapon of battle. You need to arm yourself. And here's the words that Peter uses. Arm yourself with this mind. In other words, there's a certain way that you need to be thinking, and that way of thinking will help you in your spiritual battle. As we say, be holy, you're supposed to be fighting sin. And so how is it that we fight sin? These spiritual disciplines we've been talking about, read the Word, let the Word, the washing of the water of the Word over your soul be changing you and you're fighting sin. Be in prayer. God, I want you to hear my prayer. I don't want sin to come between me and you. And so I'm fighting sin with the spiritual discipline of prayer. Today, we're gathered together as believers, as a body, and we're fighting sin by mutually encouraging one another. Peter's going to give you one right here. Arm yourself with this mind. And what is that mind? You're combining two thoughts. Be holy, and sometimes it might cost you in suffering to be holy. And now watch what he says at the end of verse 1. What is the mind? What is the thought that you're going to use to arm yourself? Verse 1. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. I'll make it simple. In the battle against sin, if you're a believer, you've changed sides. You used to be on the side with sin, Satan, and the flesh. And now that you're a believer, you've changed sides. You're over here on the side with Jesus, and you're on the side of a transformed life because the gospel has changed who you are. And if, follow these two thoughts being connected, if you're being holy, and if you've suffered for it, why would you ever leave this side and go back to that side? Talk pigeon, you miss a talk or saying. Mix him blood, Lord, this lie. We might not go back. That's the former, the former group that I was associated with, my flesh. I'm putting away my flesh, and now I'm following after Christ, and I'm not going to go back to the flesh because I've already received, I've already received pain for doing right. So I would never want to remove myself from his side and go back and join that side. I hope you follow this idea. Arm yourself with this weapon. Oh, you have a lot of weapons that you can use to fight against sin, but this might just be one more weapon. Peter says, arm yourself with this mind that you've left the flesh and sin, and you're now following Jesus. You've ceased from sin, so don't go back and join the enemy. Fight against your sin. As I look through this epistle, I see many pictures of, of fighting against sin and the weapons that we have against sin. 
And I think that those spiritual disciplines are those weapons. Reading the words, spending time in prayer, the gathering of believers as a church body. When we come together as a church body, we encourage one another. Don't think of, I go to church as in, oh, this is the thing I do every week, I go to church. That's not what's happening. For the church body, I come to the church and I gather with other brothers and sisters, I receive encouragement from them, and I give encouragement to them. This is strengthening. It's another weapon against the wicked one and how he wants to undermine your spiritual life. You see, gathering together with the believers. I think in my mind of a picture, uh, maybe you've seen the movies of World War II, and, and I think of those trenches, the barracks that they would dig, and those soldiers would be down inside of those and then fighting up over the top. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen those videos. And I think to myself of, of maybe a group of, say, 10 or 12 soldiers down in one, one, down in one trench, and they're all down there in the razor wire at the top, and, 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 and just down to the end corner and around the corner, I think maybe there's one guy there. And he's there all by himself. And he's there, and there, he's taking all the firepower. For whatever reason, the enemy is shooting all the firepower at that one guy that's over on the corner by himself. And every once in a while, he tries to pop up so he can shoot back, but it's useless. And maybe he's down in the trench, and he's throwing his grenades over the top, just trying to keep the enemy back. And what he has no idea is that just around the corner is a whole bunch of other soldiers that are on his side. You see, the chaos of war creates these sort of things. And here's 10, 12 soldiers that are just thankful that right now there's nothing coming at us, but they have no idea that their buddy is just around the corner. And you realize that the church gathering is just like that. The church gathering is you or one all by yourself, down around the corner, all by yourself, taking firepower from Satan, and he's just dropping bombs. He's got your number, and it doesn't matter what you do to fight back. you got nothing. But then just around the corner is a whole group of people that love you and want to fight with you and push back against the wicked one. And so, friend, let me encourage you. Don't think of churches. I go and clock in and did my church this week. No, this is where you're going to get strength. You come together with believers and listen to the proclamation of the word. You know what the proclamation of the word is? That's me putting bullets in your gun. And us praying together, we're calling in much higher firepower. Bringing it in on the wicked one. God, we've got to get him, those, the Satan and his evil doings away from us so we call in firepower. Don't think of prayer as I just call God and I ask him, Lord, I just need some extra pay raise this year. No, we're talking about massive firepower at his disposal. And so please think with me as I talk the rest of our time about the church body. I want you to think how important this church body is for your spiritual walk. As I look through the book of 1 Peter, I see Peter addressing not just individuals, but also the church. I can point that out to you. If you'll walk with me through it, I'll do it quickly. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. This is not just to individuals, but this is to corporate church bodies. Here's 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. 
Each one of us, individual stones, within the picture he's using, stones that are put together to make a house. A royal priesthood, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And then you can see down in verse 9, you're a chosen generation. One person is not a generation. You are a chosen generation, he speaks to us. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That you, and by the way, the ye there is plural. That ye, as a church, together will show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as a church body, we're showing forth his praises. Look at verse 11. That's chapter 2 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So together, we are strangers. We used to be strangers against God, but now we're strangers to the world. We're pilgrims. Guys, I love our nation. But our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship as believers is in heaven, and He has left us here as ambassadors for Him. And so we are called as a peculiar people. You see chapter 3 and verse 8. We saw this verse last week. Be ye, plural, all of one mind. should be unity, compassion, one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous, and don't render evil for evil. Don't give railing for railing, but instead blessing. And so we're to be edifying one another. And then chapter 5 and verse 1, overview, chapter 5 and verse 1 specifically to pastors, but then also for pastors to the church. Verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder, and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Here's the command, elders, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So in other words, pastors feed the flock of God. Use the Word of God to prepare the meal for the people so that the people will be able to walk holy. I'd like to draw your attention back to 1 Peter 4, though. We'll spend the rest of our time looking at 1 Peter 4, verses 8 to 11. And here in these verses, Peter gives some elements of a godly church body. What does it look like to have a godly church body? I can see those in 1 Timothy, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 4, verses 8 to 11. Verse number 8. And above all things... Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Let's see three things in these verses. What is it that would be elements, parts of a godly church body? The first one is unhindered charity. Unhindered charity. I take those words directly out of verse 8. Above all things, have fervent, boiling hot charity. Unhindered. Nothing stopping it. Let that charity be overflowing. For charity covers a multitude of sins. 
So that word charity is something that the church should be displaying one towards another, unhindered, nothing stopping it, allowing that charity to be shown one to another. As a definition of charity, I think back to when I was a child and I would listen to my pastor, and he often said this, he often defined charity as love with work clothes on. Love with the work clothes on. And you can just imagine what this means. It's love, but love that goes beyond just this is, I love you. Love is there at your heart level, but then charity is love with the work clothes on. I take this love and I put it into action. Something becomes of it. It's one thing to say, I love you. It's a completely different thing to show, I love you. That's what charity is. Charity is showing I love you. Could you imagine with Becky and I, in May, we will have been married for 25 years. You look at white grass, I still feel young, okay? (laughs) 25 years in May. I'm thankful for the wife that God's given me. But could you imagine if on our wedding day, I told her, I love you, and then after that, I didn't do it again? Could you imagine as the years went by and I come home from work, I walk in the house and she says to me, how was your day? And I say, don't have time right now. I got emails I need to answer. Go over and sit down with my phone and begin to answer emails. And she are you done with your emails? Yeah, I'm just doing social media now. And how was your day? I don't have time to talk to you right now. I'll talk later. I said something like that to her this morning. She said, you would find your phone at the bottom of a swimming pool. I believe it. (laughs) Could you imagine, though, for 25 years as this continues to go on, and then one day she's just had enough? And could you imagine as she stands at the door? I'm trying to leave. She stands at the door and she looks at me and she says, I have a feeling you don't love me. Do you really love me? Could you imagine if I told her something like this? I say, On the day we got married, I told you I loved you, and if it changed, I would let you know. (laughs) You say, there's no love there. How is it that you let someone know that you love them? It's not just with words, it's with actions. How is it that she knows that I love her? It's because in the morning, and I don't say this to lift myself up, maybe I can just give these as tips to some of you guys, okay? It's because in the morning, I rush through getting ready so that I can cook her breakfast. And you can ask her, every day of the week, I make breakfast. Not because me gilly-gilly. It's because I love my wife and I want her to know that I love her. Maybe that's not your thing. Find a different way. I said it last week, buy her dirt. If she likes plants, buy her dirt. Find ways that I can wash the dishes. I do the dishes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Justice spends time with us, and I'm excited when she's there because she helps me with doing the dishes. And Becky never asked me one time. She never asked me, would you do the dishes? I just told her, that's my thing. I'm going to, you cook dinner. I'm going to wash the dishes. On Thursdays, on Thursdays, I do my sermon preparation. So on Thursdays, I'm writing the sermon for Sunday that I'm going to stand up here and preach. And you know what I do on Thursdays? I set an alarm on my phone for every one hour. And you know what I do at that one hour? I get up from my desk and I go and I change the laundry. 
Man's a working laundry. Uh. Is it because I'm trying to show off? No. Most people have no idea that for the last how many years I've done the laundry. I do it because I love my wife. I want her to know. She does her own stuff. She's got her own work. But I do these things to show her that I love her. And so there's a difference between I say that I love you and I show that I love you. Do you see this? And within a church body, there should be unhindered charity. There should be a display of love one for another. You say, Pastor, what's that look like? Oh, good, I'm glad you asked. I know I asked it for you. (laughs) Pre-planned. What's it look like? Step one. Sunday morning, get here early. Get here early. And when you get here early, look for somebody that you don't know. I submit to you that there are people that have been coming to this church for months, if not years, that sit on one side of the building that do not know the people who sit on the other side of the building. We are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. Now, I know that there's some of you that intentionally move around from one place to the next, and I don't even know how to pray for you because I forget where you were sitting, all right? But there are people that come for church on Sunday and they go back and they sit in the same seat every week and they haven't got a clue who that person is over on the other side of the church. You know what charity is? Showing that I love the church body. So when you come in, maybe before you go to your seat or after you go to your seat, you get up and you walk across the auditorium and you meet somebody. Hi, I've seen you come into church You realize that when you do the same thing over and over and over, you see the same people over and over and over? If you go to the same supermarket on the same day of the week, every week, you'll see the same people there, right? This isn't the supermarket. This isn't the supermarket. This is the body of Christ. You might be an eye and they might be a nose. The eye needs to know who the nose is. You might be an ear and they might be a finger. The body of Christ needs to know itself. And so in charity, hey, imagine with me, in charity, as a Highlander gets up and walks across and says, oh, you're a Papuan, but I don't care, I love you. Or a businessman comes in and doesn't just sit down next to somebody that just happened to be there, but a businessman sits down next to somebody, he's successful and they're not, and together we can rejoice in the fact that we're both changed because of the gospel. Oh, this is what charity looks like. Charity looks like I'm going to extend a hand, extend a voice. I'm going to get to know you so that when a need comes up, I know how to meet it. And it's not some nameless person. How often as a pastor have I seen this happen? I'll throw it across the church WhatsApp. Please pray for this person. They're going through a difficult time. And I already know in the back of my mind, 70% of the people on this WhatsApp group have no idea who that is, even though we've been coming and worshiping week after week after week after week charity. It's love with the work clothes on. It it takes a little bit extra. I'll be honest, there's days when I don't want to wash the dishes, but I do it anyway because I love. Charity is love with the work clothes on. And and I'm going to say it while I'm here. I am thankful because I'm seeing more and more of what I just described. I'm seeing more and more of it happen. There's a number of you, and I've been watching you do it. Because on Sunday mornings, as people come in, I'm working my way around to try to make sure I greet everybody personally, unless you came late, and then you get greeted at the door on the way out. (laughs) 
But if you got here early, I did my best to get around and greet you. And I look, while I'm doing it, I look around and there's other people doing it too. I think that's a great thing. That's the church body showing love to itself. Charity. Unhindered charity. Verse 9 gives us the next one. Ungrudging hospitality. Ungrudging hospitality. Use, he says in verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. You know what grudging is, right? Me less. I don't want to. That's grudging. Use hospitality without grudging. Hospitality literally means fond of guests. I enjoy having people to my house. I want people to come to my house. This is Becky and I. We built our house in such a way that it had size to be able to have people in our home. We want people to be in our home. Being hospitable. Finding ways to encourage. And this is outside of the gathering. So the church body is being hospitable to one another outside of the church. We show charity together and then outside of. Now, do you know what the opposite of hospitality is, right? Hospitality is a life of scarcity. A life of scarcity says this. I need to look after myself. There's not enough stuff to go around. I need to make sure that me and my family are taken care of. Sorry for you people. You don't get any of my stuff. Hospitality says the opposite. Hospitality says, God's always going to take care of all of our needs, and I'm going to share what I've got with others. And he says, you know what? A healthy church body is going to use hospitality without grudging, encouraging the church body, lifting each other up. Come, partake. It's the mentality of hospitality. I've not asked their permission, but I'll just make mention based on conversation last week. I am thrilled. Agima and Sharon last week made mention to us, we want to host a faith family at our house on Wednesday evenings at Kennedy Estates. And I think to myself, how many people live in seven mile, eight mile, nine mile that would be able to be benefited by having a faith family gathering midweek and for a family to say, we'll open our home and we will invite people to come to our home every week. It's not just come and gather once, it's every, that's taxing. And I'm thankful for family that would do that. And may I encourage church families, invite people, open your home, live with a life that says God will provide. And verses 10 and 11 Another element of a church, godly church body is unselfish ministry. Unselfish ministry. I'll read verse 10. As every man has received the gift, it's an important word, as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same, the same gift, one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as every man has received the gift, I'll say this and then I'll defend it. Every single believer has been given a spiritual gift by God Almighty. Every single believer. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you might should ask some people that are around you that know you well. Because there's a really good chance, maybe if you don't know it, somebody else does know it. 
there are many different gifts that God has given to His people, and those gifts are not for us to use for ourselves. They are given to you for the sake of the church. I'll defend that. Here's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So every single one of us believers has received a gift. It came from God, and He had a purpose for it. Now, in the verses that follow, this is Ephesians 4, 7, in the verses that follow, he outlines different kinds of gifts. Uh, The gift of preaching, the gift of being an evangelist, the gift of administration, the gift of mercy. There's many different gifts. But then in verse 11, this is Ephesians 7, verse 11, he tells us what the purpose of those gifts are. Here's uh, verse 12. Here's Ephesians 4, verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, God gave you a gift, and I don't know what your gift is. Maybe you're gifted at administration. Joe Obaha is gifted in administration. He knows how to make sure which person gets on which bus and what time that bus comes by. He puts all those things together. Maybe you're gifted in administration. Maybe you're gifted with a heart of mercy. In other words, you see needs and you have the financial means to be able to help. You don't need, you don't need uh, public recognition for that. You just have a gift. God's, God's blessed you to be a blessing. Maybe God's given you the gift of encouragement. And you have the ability with your words to come alongside someone, sit with them, listen to them as they go through their problem. And you have the ability to be compassionate and provide encouraging words. Every single person has a gift. I don't know what yours is. It's a lot of you for me to list out. But every single believer has a gift given by God to them, and it serves a purpose. For the perfecting of the saints, to make us perfect and whole in Him. For the work of the ministry, so that we as a church can go forward. We don't want to be stagnant, we want to move forward. And for the edifying of the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ. So God's given you a gift, and that gift has a purpose, and the purpose, namely, is to strengthen the church. So then, we come back to this thought, 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same gift one to another, and do it as a good steward. In other words, God's given you this gift, look after it. Steward it well. The opposite of stewarding is wasting. And so steward it well and steward it. It's the gift of the grace of God that's been given to you. And I think that when we talk about the church, that often there are two very terrible mindsets that are often associated with church. There are those who think that they can just attend whenever they want to. Listen to these words of the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 23 to 25. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold it. Don't let go of it. For he's faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Do you remember the words that I used last week when I said, how many of you have been reading your Bible this week? And then I said, find someone who's reading and encourage them. That's what this Hebrews 10.24 is saying. It's saying, provoke 
one another unto love and to good work. Encourage one another. And then he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, some just say, ah, I can take it or leave it. And he says, don't do that. Don't forsake the assembling. But exhorting, encouraging each other, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day of approaching. So don't forsake the gathering. And I might say it this way. The gathering of believers is the single most important moment of the entire week. Let me say it again. The gathering of believers is the single most important moment of the entire week. So as you look through your week and you schedule out what your week is going to look like and what are you going to do in that week, I hope you keep a calendar. Don't hear me saying you need to go buy a calendar. I said keep a calendar. They're different things. Schedule your week. You prioritize what's important. So what's most important to you? And I find it very interesting that some people would say, well, going to my friend's, and I've heard this, going to my friend's rugby game is so important, so I'm just going to skip church this week and I'll go to my friend's rugby game. I think to myself, is the gathering of the believers more important or is watching your friend run up and down a field and get tackled more important? Where are the priorities? I find it interesting that some people are able to get up every morning, Monday to Friday, without fail and be at work on time, and yet come Sunday morning, an hour later than they have to be at work, and they think, oh, I'm just too tired to go to church today. That's placing the priorities in the wrong place. If we're called to be holy, and we need the ammunition from one another, and we need the encouragement and the firepower, friend, you've got to place the gathering of believers as the most important moment of your entire week. And then another misconception that I often hear is that I can just come, enjoy the preaching, but the rest of it isn't for me. And he's going to speak directly against that. Look at verse 10. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. He did not say, come to church and listen to preaching. Now as a pastor, I wish he did. I wish he had said, come listen to the preacher preach. That's not what he said. What he said was, minister one to another. Lift up each other. As God has given you this gift, minister one to another. So maybe you're an encourager or an administrator or you're good with technology. Or maybe you're just one big dude that can stand at the back door and keep things secure. God's given you a gift. Use it for the edification of the body. And use it to its maximum ability. Look at verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, preachers, handle the word of God carefully. This is not a light thing. Let him speak as the oracles of God. And if any man minister, that's the rest of us within the body that are not preaching, if any man minister or serve, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. So if you serve, serve to your greatest ability. What has God enabled you to do? You do it to your greatest ability. I won't call their names, but there's a couple of ladies that over the last several months 
maybe even the last year, have been a big part of the toilet cleaning crew. I won't call their names because I don't want to embarrass them. But I watch as they live out verse 11. You watch me to the best of their ability. Do you see me? To the best of their ability. And I think to myself, did I do the best of my ability today when I preach the Word of God? And I wonder as you bring your gift that God has given to you, as you bring your gift to give it back to God, God, am I doing my best with it? And the reason that we do this is not so that people will say, what a great preacher, or what a, what a great Bible expositor, or what a great singing group that they've got, or what a great job they do in keeping the building clean, or what great drivers they have in helping bring people to church. No, that's not the reason we do it. Verse 11 gives us clearly what the reason is. I'll read verse 11. If any man speak... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God has given. That, here's the reason, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why is it that you do what you do for the church body? It's not so that the church body gets a name, and it's not so that you personally get a name. It's so that He gets a name. And He gets a name through Jesus. Did you see the words? So that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why? Watch me. Because there is nothing else in this world that will bring a Highlander together with a Papuan or a businessman together with someone who is of lower means. Nothing else will bring people together like the gospel will. And that happens through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has changed us. And he's done an amazing work in our hearts. So he's drawn us together for the glory of God. And I'll close with this. So be holy. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would be holy even as you are holy. You've called us. I pray we'd be holy. And I pray that we as a church body would take serious, yes, the gathering of the church body every week. That moment that you've called us to be together. Yes, sing with our voices. Proclaim your goodness to you and to each other. Give. God, we have been blessed in so many ways, even the spiritual blessings that you've given us and then the ways that you've blessed us to be blessing to others. Lord, I pray that we would worship you in these ways and we sit and hear the proclamation of the word of god as the scriptures are proclaimed and we rearm ourselves go into battle against sin god i pray for my brothers and sisters i pray we would take seriously the spiritual discipline of being a body so lord i thank you for your grace that you've bestowed upon our lives may we live out the truths that we've learned in jesus name Amen. We love you, church.